0: Welcome to the Marvelous Madam's Podcast. I'm your host, Madam Chris, handling the show solo while my co-host Amy is on a self-care sabbatical. But I am still burdened with the glorious purpose of talking all things Marvel. Hello everyone, and welcome to 2022, whether you like it or not. Everyone should be recovered from their hangovers by now, so I won't bother to keep my voice low today. And honestly... I couldn't if I wanted to, because it is finally time to discuss the premier movie event of 2021, Spider-Man No Way Home. I was there opening night in IMAX with my husband, who was just as blown away as I was. We could not have asked for more out of our first theater experience in about two and a half years. When Amy and I cover anything on the podcast... We watch the movie or show episode at least twice, usually three times, to properly analyze it. One of us may have watched a particular show enough times that Disney was probably close to sending the cops out for a welfare check. In any event, we watch first just to experience it and then watch again taking notes. Spider-Man No Way Home made this a little tough since it's the first time I couldn't easily do multiple watches. There I was in the theater a second time sitting on the aisle to give me the light from the stairs, relying on that and the big screen to illuminate my parchment and quill. My brain has been swarming with thoughts after these two watches, but one keeps coming through above all others. This movie should never have worked. On paper, the concept must have looked more bloated and self-indulgent than me, if I eat gluten. But John Watts and his team along with this incredible cast, totally pulled it off. I can't quite wrap my head around it. Every character got their moment. Every arc had a resolution. The plot made sense. And every glorious bit of fan service had some purpose in driving character arcs or the overall plot. On top of that, the visual effects were the best I've ever seen. I'm gonna do my best to maintain some kind of logical order here, but that's an uphill battle given the grandeur of this movie. So bear with me, everybody. Let's now dive fully in to Spider-Man No Way Home. We'll start with the overall plot and some of the themes present. With the MCU Spider-Man franchise as a whole, I think the most important factor to its quality and success was keeping John Watts on to direct all three movies. You can draw a straight line from Peter Parker's narrative in Homecoming, straight through to him standing alone in that tiny apartment. It has a level of cohesion that you'd be hard pressed to find in other movie trilogies. The plot of No Way Home not only picks up right where Far From Home left off in time, but also in terms of cultural themes. Far From Home centered around the concepts of truth and perception and mirrored the post-truth world we found ourselves in, especially in the U.S. No Way Home took that to the next logical step with the reveal of Peter's identity and the full resurrection of J. Jonah Jameson, played by the brilliant J.K. Simmons, who slipped back into his character like a second skin. Human, not lizard, just to be clear. Once Spider-Man's mask is removed, we see exactly what we're experiencing now in the real world. Tribalism? mob mentality, and (sighs) manufactured performative reactions. They hit the nail right on the head. And setting Jameson up as a pseudo-Alex Jones was brilliant. What I liked most about that choice is that Jameson is always external to the plot. Watts and the writers walked a tightrope with that character. Make him too important, and you give credibility to Jones and those of his ilk. But if you don't make him important enough, you downplay the massive amount of damage those people have done to democracy. So Jameson is never a part of anything. He only comments. Thus, even with very little screen time, we understand that this is a very insidious man who knows simultaneously too much and nothing at all. Next, I have to mention the entity responsible for some of the greatest And most boneheaded mistakes made in the Marvel Universe. Ego. And I don't mean Kurt Russell. With Tony gone, somebody had to take on the mantle of the MCU's head egomaniac. And it fits Stephen Strange like a glove, didn't it? Let's be clear MJ is right. All of the events, destruction, and universe breaking in Spider Man No Way Home are entirely, completely. 1,000% Dr. Strange's fault. We can hardly blame the desperate, guilt-ridden teenager who was just trying to help his friends and family. Does Strange care about Peter? Yes. He may be cold, but he's not heartless. And I'm not knocking Dr. Strange for being cold. It can be a valuable trait in many situations, such as defeating Thanos. But I think it's ego that drives Strange to help Peter as much, if not more, than compassion. Stephen Strange is one of the good guys, but he's still an arrogant narcissist. He enjoys showing off, enjoys being right, and enjoys the admiration of others. And he really, really likes breaking rules. That's a dangerous combination when a kid shows up on his doorstep asking him to fuck around with the laws of physics. Much like Tony at Homecoming, Strange fails to see Peter for the teenager he is, and also fails to see his own hubris. The result makes that Staten Island Ferry debacle in Homecoming look like a broken vase. Oh, and I never knew till opening night that I needed to hear Benedict Cumberbatch say, Scooby-Doo this shit, before I die. What was also very clear to me watching No Way Home was that Watts and the writers know the Spider-Verse backwards and forwards, and have affection for all the movies. So one of the biggest strengths, for me at least, of most of the Disney Plus shows is that they've made us look back on the Infinity Saga and our heroes in a new light, and that light isn't always flattering, particularly on Falcon and the Winter Soldier. No Way Home had us looking back on the Raimi trilogy and the Garfield movies, but in a totally different way. I'm calling it reverential mockery, and it's masterfully done. The fact that everyone was obviously on board with it shined through too. I give the most credit on this to Tobey Maguire and Jamie Foxx, who were more than happy to poke fun at themselves. Goddamn eels. And speaking of Jamie Foxx, I think he has officially usurped Paul Rudd as the ageless one of Marvel. Did you see that man? I demand to see his birth certificate before I believe he's 54 years old. And the writers go even further winking at us not only at the previous Spidey movies, but at the ridiculousness of comic book plots in general. I mean, you really gotta watch where you fall. Never know where there's an open vat of toxic chemicals or a science experiment gone haywire. Particularly with Fox and Maguire, they did more than lovingly poke fun, but rehabbed characters that desperately needed it. One could argue that Max's transformation is a plot hole. But fuck it. That creeper needed fixing, so I don't care how thin the logic behind it was. And in the case of our cool youth bastard, I think he was hands down better in No Way Home than in any of the Raimi movies, mainly because I actually found him believable as a human being. The interactions between Maguire, Garfield, and Holland are the perfect mix of hilarious, heartfelt, and just plain epic. When the three Spider-Mans jumped into battle together, holy shit, my heart was bursting like the Grinch when he heard the Who's singing from Mount Crumpet. It's not easy to create such deep character bonds in so little time, but they managed it. And it's most evident when Holland is about to kill the Goblin. Maguire stops him, and in that moment, no words are needed to convey everything they're saying to each other. Since we're on the Spider-Mans, let's talk about Andrew Garfield a minute, one of the five British men in this movie masquerading as Americans in what has to be some sort of record. I'm not a fan of his Spidey movies, but he is a fantastic actor. I sobbed my way through Hacksaw Ridge, and more recently loved him in Tick, Tick, Boom on Netflix. In case you didn't know, guys, he's got an amazing voice. Go check that one out if you're into musicals. Like most Marvel fans, I'm sure, I recognized Spider Man in the Alley as Garfield right away because the man is a walking string bee. And even though I don't care for the Amazing Spider Mans, damn was I happy to see this Peter Parker because he was delightful. And you know, I never realized till this movie just how much Andrew Garfield looks like and with his American accent sounds like. Ben Schwartz. Particularly Jean-Ralphio Saperstein. My fellow Parks and Rec fans, was anyone else half expecting Jenny Slate to pop out of a closet? Anyway, Garfield's performance was so touching, especially his moment of redemption. I'd like to think that after saving MJ, he can start to move forward with his life and find a little happiness because, let's face it, he's no spring chicken. Sorry, Max, but that 38-year-old man is not a kid. While we're on the subject of British imposters, I must now speak about a certain gentleman before I explode, as I nearly did in the theater. When Matt Murdock appeared in May's kitchen, my husband had to pull me back down into my seat. And when he caught that brick, well, let's just say it's a good thing I had cut off my water intake at 3pm that day. With the one true daredevil now part of the MCU, Charlie Cox can go back to being a normal human being and not the nervous, squirming mess he's been in interviews for months. And let's be real, folks. It's no coincidence that Matt was representing Peter. He sought the case out. And I wouldn't be surprised if he also knew Spider-Man's identity long before Mysterio blew it up. Marvel has confirmed we'll be seeing Matt Murdock again on She-Hulk. Since Jennifer Walters is a lawyer, we can assume Matt will appear in a legal capacity. But I'm hoping we see Daredevil on the forthcoming Echo series, with Alaquacox Cox reprising her role as Maya Lopez. Now let's take a break from the heroes for a minute and talk about our villains. We'll start with Dr. Otto Octavius. Yes, kids, it's his real name. Now, I know many of you enjoy and revere Spider-Man 2. I personally find it a violation of my Eighth Amendment right against cruel and unusual punishment but I do acknowledge that Doc Ock is a very sympathetic villain. So it was great to see the man, the scientist, find his way back and actually become a hero. And man, that action on the bridge was incredible. Alfred Molina was excellent, as he is in all things. I'll be honest, though. The hair was a little weird at times. He kind of looked like he had a wet gerbil on his head, but it's fine. I touched on Jamie Foxx's Electro already, And there's not too much to say there since the original character was so weak. I think his biggest contribution to No Way Home was in saying that there has to be a black Spider-Man somewhere. It makes me wonder if Marvel has any plans to bring a live-action Miles Morales into the MCU, especially since Tom Holland has recently been making statements that seem to contradict Sony's plans for another trilogy with him. There's not much to say about Sandman and Kurt Connors either, though they both fit into this movie much better than their own. And while I'm glad they left the rhino out of it, it would have been funny to see Thomas Hayden Church and Paul Giamatti in adjoining cells making a sideways joke for the one person in a Marvel audience who would chuckle and say, I understood that reference. I thoroughly enjoyed all the baddies chatting amongst themselves in the dungeon. But come on, the Green Goblin stole the show. If someone had asked me leaving the theater on opening night who I thought the MVP of No Way Home was, I would have said Willem Dafoe. God damn did he nail this. And to his credit, he looks great at 66. I thought they'd have to do some de-aging, but it wasn't necessary. Now somehow, despite a long esteemed career, this man has never won an Oscar, a Golden Globe, or a Screen Actors Guild Award. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that he deserves a supporting actor nomination for No Way Home, at the very least. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd ever have sympathy for Norman Osborn, but he got me. When he showed up at May's shelter, frail, broken, and lost, I teared up. I found myself rooting for him the whole movie, Hoping he would be cured regardless of what he'd done or who he'd hurt. Norman was compelling enough, but Defoe took the goblin to another level. In the original Spider Man, I couldn't take him seriously. The script was too cheesy, and Raimi made everything too campy for my liking. But this goblin gave me the chills. He was absolutely unhinged, and Defoe made a very comic booky character. Totally believable. I couldn't take my eyes off of him, even as spit was flying out of his mouth. Then at the end, when he comes back to himself, that final, what have I done, broke my heart. Even cured, Norman Osborn will never recover, in his universe or any other. And his role in May Parker's death gives the Green Goblin his rightful due as a major catalyst in the arc of Peter Parker. I am wondering, though, are there variants of all these villains somewhere in our Earth-616? Food for thought. Lastly, the goblin touched on an idea that keeps sticking in my mind, as it pertains to movie villains and the real world. With Norman tied up in the metaphorical trunk, the goblin mocks the idea of Peter's cure, adamantly believing that he doesn't need to be fixed. I think this idea is overshadowed by the rest of this epic movie, but it's important. We can all agree that Norman Osborn is suffering from a severe mental illness, albeit in comic book form. In reality, one of the most challenging aspects of treating people with mental illness is getting them to accept that they have one. The more I learn, though, about the body, mind, and spirit in healing my own illnesses, the more I think... The Goblin might have a little bit of a point. Obviously, Norman Osborn needed fixing, since he became a bloodthirsty monster hell-bent on causing chaos all over New York. But in the real world, I think we need a whole new system for the way we deal with people whose brains work, we'll say, a little differently. Since I mentioned it, now seems the time to discuss The Death of May Parker, played by the incredibly talented Marissa Tomei. This hit me hard. Unlike the other Spidey franchises, Aunt May has been an actual character in the MCU, and an important one. She's Peter's moral compass, and he gets his deep sense of compassion and generosity from her. But she's not just a plot device for Peter's arc. May's a hero in her own right. Despite being blipped herself, May started a nonprofit organization to help her community, because that's just who she is and who she raised her nephew to be. She doesn't sit idly by either, while Peter does his spider maning In fact, May is the true driving force of this plot. She's the one who hammers home Peter's obligation to help these men, rather than sending them back to certain death in their universes. At every turn, she's helping to corral the bad guys and get them cured. And she doesn't run away or hide in the face of danger. May Parker goes down fighting for herself, for her nephew, and everything she stands for. And that's why I don't view her death as fridging. If MCU Peter had a living Uncle Ben and they killed off May instead of him, that would be a different story. But she's the only family he had left, so it had to be her. May is not a generic woman being sacrificed for a man's arc here but a fellow hero who died in battle and understood that risk. And jumping back to fan service for a moment, with the wrenching performances of Tomei and Holland, we got the most important rehab of all. With great power comes great responsibility done right. I had just enough tissues in my travel pack for that one. And I haven't mentioned it yet, but now's the perfect time. The score of this movie is phenomenal. During May's death in particular, it amplified every moment. I don't think the contribution of the score as a whole should be underestimated. Alright, we've covered one of the women in this movie, so let's talk about the other. Michelle Jones-Watson, a.k.a. our MJ. I have loved her from the beginning. Zendaya's done a great job with this role. In No Way Home, she may be Peter's girlfriend, but she is not the girlfriend. We've come a long way from the dark days of Kirsten Dunst and her perpetual kidnappings. MJ has integrity in spades, and so does the adorable Ned Leeds, by the way. Once the media and the world at large crashed down upon Peter, most people, not even just teenagers, would have checked out of that relationship to save their own skin. But not MJ. Despite the consequences for her own future, MJ stays loyal to Peter. And I think she would have stuck even if they were still just friends and not officially a couple. Like May, this is not an instance of a female character sacrificing herself for a man. It's not about gender, because Ned sticks too. This is MJ being a strong person who can think for herself despite enormous pressure, and choosing to support a friend and a cause she believes in. MJ actually reminds me a lot of Karen Page on Daredevil in this way. Once it's clear that MJ is sticking by Peter, Watts and the writers could have very easily sidelined her from the movie. 20 years ago, that's exactly what would have happened. And did happen. She would have stayed safe in her apartment until a goblin kidnapped her. But not this MJ. She's an integral part of the Scooby-Doo gang and accepts all the risks that come with fighting monsters. Furthermore, she's valuable not because she's playing den mother, But because she has an MIT caliper brain. She's something of a scientist herself, you know. Now, does she need saving eventually? Yes, but so do all the men at some point in this movie, including the ones with superpowers. And in the end, in that crushing goodbye, MJ doesn't fall apart. She doesn't get hysterical. She accepts what has to be done to repair the universe, even though it means losing a person she loves and changing her life in a drastic way. How many people would have the courage to do that? To let it happen? I say let, because if there was one person who could have convinced Peter not to let Strange cast that final spell, it was MJ. Now finally, we come to the man of the hour, Peter 1, who, when you think about it, really should be Peter 3, since he's the youngest, but we'll let him happen. So I said earlier that after initially seeing No Way Home, I thought Willem Dafoe was the MVP. But after my second viewing, I'm now giving that mantle to Mr. Holland. He's been so good in this franchise for so long now that I took his performance for granted the first time around. His range in this movie is incredible. An actor with such perfect comic timing who can also convey deep emotional intensity is a real gem. And he shines throughout the movie. And now, drumroll, it's confession time, guys. In the last two weeks, I have been forced to come to terms with something I've been trying to deny for a while. After seeing No Way Home and the Uncharted trailer on the big screen, I must admit to myself that Tom Holland is hot. I can't suppress it any longer and must just keep telling myself that he is 25 years old. Considering my well-known hall pass, some of you may be surprised by this attraction, but men with the features of Tom Holland and Charlie Cox are, we'll say, my secondary type, of which my husband is also a member. Mr. Holland is spoken for, though, and since he announced he's taking a break from acting to start a family, we can confirm for Guy in the Crowd that Zendaya will indeed be having his spider babies. All joking aside, though, Tom Holland's youthful innocence is a key component of his Peter Parker. We're never taken out of the movie because he looks like he's pushing 30. And the same can be said of Zendaya and Jacob Adelon. And because Holland is so believable as a teen, we sympathize with him even more. I've discussed how the plot of this movie works in terms of logic and themes, but it also works perfectly for our Peter's arc. And everyone's, really. It reminds us why we fell in love with this Peter Parker to begin with. He's more concerned about others than he is about himself. Peter could easily brood about being rejected from MIT, but his instinct is to fight for MJ and Ned, even if his method on that is a little bit drastic. And that's the other part of Peter Parker that John Watts and the writers understand that, unfortunately, Dr. Strange did not. Peter is still just a kid. And it's the same with MJ and Ned. They're kids who care about kid things, but they have the emotional maturity to understand that bigger things are at stake. They never turn on each other or break trust, at least not intentionally. Seriously, Ned, you don't talk to the cops without a lawyer. And you know what I really love? That Peter and MJ never treat Ned like a third wheel. And the movie never treats him like a joke in that way. The three of them are such a solid unit forged by a mix of shared adventure, trauma, and common interests that makes the end of this movie all the more heart-wrenching. Watts and the writers have done a fantastic job with Peter's journey from homecoming to now and just within No Way Home without ever stumbling or backtracking. We can see his growth from two key scenes in particular, the spell casts. When Peter first approaches our boneheaded sorcerer, he's driven by love but blinded by naivete. Like Strange says, Peter is trying to live two opposing lives. And we've all been here, right? Everyone at some point has felt pulled in different directions. And what do we do? We try to take control of the situation and make it work so we can have it all. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, particularly when you're trying to bend physics to your will. I can't fault Peter for trying to clean up his mess. On the contrary, I applaud him for taking responsibility for it. In that way, he's got a leg up on Mr. Doctor, who spends much of his screen time blaming Peter for the miscast spell. Beyond Mr. Parker's compassion and bravery, we also see his intellect. Taking on Doctor Strange on his turf was a bowler move. And what a treat it was to see Doctor Strange visual effects blended seamlessly into this movie. Rather than Brawn or superpowers, Peter uses his intellect to steal the cube and leave Strange in the lurch. But by the end of the movie, Peter finally accepts the hard truth he can't have it all. And now that the chaos has snowballed into a multiversal mess, he can't have anything. So, to save his world, to protect those he loves, Our hero has Dr. Strange wipe Peter Parker off the face of our Earth. I can't think of an act more selfless. Yes, Tony gave his life to save the universe and everyone he cared about. But he didn't have to then suffer through living in that world as essentially an invisible man with no history. And just when it seems like we can't possibly have more admiration for Peter, he kicks the integrity up a notch. He shows up at the diner, speech in hand, fully prepared to rebuild his relationship with MJ. But once he sees the Band-Aid over her eye, that's the ballgame. He loves her and the faithful Ned too much to put them in danger. He's wise enough not to make the same mistakes again. And he's not even tempted to make the choice that so many people would make when faced with a life of absolute loneliness. Just giving up being Spider-Man and living a normal life. But that's not who Peter Parker is. That's not who May raised him to be. For Peter now, being Spider-Man isn't just about protecting innocent people. It's about legacy. Continuing the work of the woman who helped so many. That's who Peter Parker is. So, how will this movie affect the rest of the MCU? There's the obvious multiverse situation, and I'll get to that in a minute with that punkers trailer, along with the mid credit scene. But on a more micro level, I'm thinking about the ramifications of the federal investigation into Stark Industries. Poor Happy, as if losing May wasn't enough. He'll be under the gun here, and he'll need a lot more than that CPAP machine to get to sleep at night. I also wonder if the whole investigation will tie into the upcoming series Ironheart, and the new character of Riri Williams. We've still got Secret Invasion on the back burner, which got a little nod with that quick mention of Nick Fury being off-planet. I know I'm likely missing Easter eggs here, so if you guys caught more foreshadowing, please let me know on Twitter at MarvelMadams, or you can always email me at themarvelousmadams at gmail.com. Now, as promised, let's dig into the extras. Our mid credit scene featured Eddie Brock and his dear symbiote, Venom. There are two takeaways from this scene. Just like Peter 2 and Peter 3 were from another universe, so is Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock. He evidently came through the portal like the Spideys, so he's sent back along with them when Strange casts the final spell. However, a little bit of goo gets left behind in Earth-616. What does this mean? One thing, possibly two. This is definitely an indication that Venom will be brought into the MCU proper but that doesn't mean Tom Hardy will be as well. Just like with Peter Parker, if there's an Eddie Brock in Earth-616, he may be a totally different person. And you know what, people? If they do recast Tom Hardy, I'm not gonna cry about it. I have never, and will never, be a fan, and, frankly, three very white British guys named Tom H. in the MCU is patently absurd and would negate all of Marvel's efforts at diversity. Furthermore. I do not need to hear any more of whatever-the-hell accent Hardy is trying to do as Eddie Brock. The Bane voice was less grating to my ears. Ah, Bane. That reminds me. Does anyone mind if I reach all professional protocols for just a second to mention the trailers for the Batman? No? Okay, good. I have no idea if this movie will be watchable. With DC's track record, I'd bet against it. Nonetheless, I'm intrigued. And a little scared, because Paul Dano has given me the creeps since Little Miss Sunshine. This one might just get my ass in a seat, especially since Multiverse of Madness feels eons away. But you know what's not eons away? Morbius, which opens in theaters on January 28th. And no question there, my ass will be in a seat. Quite possibly opening night, as my husband's excited for it too. I'm not familiar with Dr. Michael Morbius at all, And it's way more fun to meet new fictional people than real people, at least for me. Plus, this trailer is compelling, and again, a little scary. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, Well, hello, Mr. Leto. Welcome to the MCU, sir. Is there anything I can do for or to you? Amy was chagrined and shocked by my attraction to him, to which I responded with, Hold on. You are surprised that I, would be attracted to a tall, lanky white guy with crystal blue eyes, long black hair, and granite cheekbones? Have we even met? For the record, I'm aware he's a weirdo, and I don't care. See you on the 28th, good sir. And now, of course, we come to Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. I was too wrapped up in No Way Home to even contemplate getting a trailer for May. It took me a few seconds to realize it was a trailer and not a standard post credit scene. So Mr. Doctor is going to have to answer for breaking the universe open like a walnut. Because nobody told him that with great power comes great responsibility. When I saw this Multiverse of Madness trailer, I felt much like I did when the first Loki trailer came out. My initial reaction was, holy shit, they're letting Hiddleston off his leash. Now. Marvel is doing the same for his buddy, Mr. Cumberbatch, and holy shit, I can't wait to see what he does. Then there's Wanda to consider. Our Strange wants her help, but I think it's much more likely that Wanda will ally with Supreme Strange and his dark magic, especially if he uses Wanda's family as leverage. Strange and Wong will need more magical assistance against the two of them. Let's not forget, Lord Foggy has said that Multiverse of Madness will tie into the Loki finale, which saw Sylvie break open the multiverse. We have no idea when that happened relative to the events of Spider-Man No Way Home. And Doctor Strange had a lot to say in No Way Home about fate and choices, which really had me thinking about the TVA. So I think we'll be seeing the God of Mischief, though I have no idea what version of him that will be but it definitely won't be the guy we saw at the end of the Loki series. Typically, we shout out individuals at the end of our episodes. But today's a special day. A year ago, when Amy and I were setting goals for 2021, we sought to hit 10,000 downloads by the end of the year. I am proud and humbled to say that we blew that goal away and ended 2021 with just over 12,000 all-time downloads and we owe it to every single one of you, whether you just started listening during Hawkeye or you've been with us since our very first and very painful Iron Man episode. But you've all given Amy and I so much more than that. Believe me when I tell you that her living situation since quarantine would drive most people to murder or a psych ward, myself included. Without the podcast, without knowing there are people out there who value what she has to say about these films and shows we all love, she'd be in a much darker place. As for me, well, before we started the podcast, I didn't think I'd ever be able to work again. All of you listening and chatting with me on Twitter, you've done more than support a podcast. You've helped make a woman whole. So, sticking with that theme, in honor of Mae Parker, let's all do something new to help someone today. All right, that wraps it up for Spider-Man No Way Home. Thank you everyone for joining me today on Chris's Corner. We're sticking with the Peters for a little while, guys, as I feel it's now the appropriate time to cover the whole live-action Spider-Verse. So join me next week for a discussion of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. In the meantime, come chat with me on Twitter and Instagram at MarvelMadams. Seriously, I'm not Steve Rogers so I can't fight all day, but I can talk about No Way Home all day. Please leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. It really helps us grow the show. And for more content, you can always check out our website, themarvelousmadams.com, where Infinity Stones are a girl's best friend.